Voyagen, season three. And I love Boy. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth's Wheel, third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You two are turning into a Star Trek script. Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it will pay off in the long run. Welcome to Voyager, a theological journey. And thanks for joining us in this episode of passion and lust and all sorts of things. Yes, in uh, Season 3, Episode 16, Ensign Vorik undergoes the Vulcan-making drive known as the Ponfar. The strong chemical imbalance affects Belana Torres as well, leading her to irrational thoughts and behaviour. Trapped in a cave, Tom Paris must try to reason with Belana and get her medical attention while trying to respect his friend and deny her uncharacteristic sexual advances. So we uh, here we are with the uh, the Ponfar. Every seven years of a of a Vulcan's life, they feel the uh, of their adult life, I should say, uh, they feel the uh, the the urge to return to the homeworld and to mate. Um, I I do want to actually just say um, as a trigger warning for any Vulcans who may be listening today, we will be discussing this delicate subject in depth. And um, so if, if that is going to be um, uh, difficult for you, then um, then uh, I would advise you to uh, listen to one of our, our other episodes. Um, and um, and also I, I would like to give the disclaimer that none of us are experts on Vulcan physiology or culture. Um, so we'll um, we'll be um, I guess uh, treading carefully as we discuss this uh, this significant and very private cultural issue uh, of the Vulcan people. Well, it certainly starts private. It doesn't end that way. So, what? Uh, where do we want to start with this? Uh, we, we've got uh, we've got this this this. I guess. Well, I mean, Elizabeth. I guess this is your first uh, Ponfar encounter in the Star Trek <coughs> universe. Yes, I had not known of such a thing before this episode. But we've seen Spock and uh, T'Pol. Um, we've seen um, so many of our Vulcan friends actually have to. Uh, work through this uh, very difficult um, experience, um, uh, Lindsay. You've uh, you've had um, quite a bit of experience over the years with the Ponfar. What are your your thoughts as we go into this? Well, I, I do need to say that my experience is, is purely watching from afar and uh, <laughs> never participating. But um, yeah, I mean, the the thing that uh, I thought was interesting this time round was entirely that sense of secrecy that, that for me, um, really didn't seem very Vulcan. And uh, Tuvok sort of uh, uh, claiming, oh, well, there's nothing logical about this, um, didn't ring through for me. There may be nothing logical about the, the drives and urges uh, that the uh, Ponfar uh, brings to a, an individual Vulcan, but surely the study of this phenomena and its sociological impact and its, its medical, um, you know, sort of uh, extent is entirely something which can be approached with logic. And it, it seemed to me quite weird that, in fact, the Vulcans uh, respond so illogically uh, to this aspect of their makeup. I thought that it was because it was such an emotional thing. Even though that word is not used much to describe it, it really is an irrational, emotional, almost knee-jerk thing that they are doing with this Ponfar. And given Vulcans just love to discuss their emotions, I thought maybe <laughs> that was the reason why it's become shrouded in this privacy thing because they're not comfortable with emotions. They're not comfortable with acting on impulse, if you like. It's um it's fascinating. I mean, and and uh, I mean, it's easy for us to begin to try and take an arm's length approach to this and say, "Oh, these strange Vulcans look at their strange ways." But as we, if we were to delve into the the purity culture and uh, of of uh, some aspects of the Christian uh, religion and the way in which I, I think probably reasonably dominantly in the in the in in modern Christian times, we just don't talk. 
about sex. We just uh, it's a private matter. It's something that we 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 don't um, want to talk about. And when we do, often we talk in terms of innuendo. We we talk around the matter or the subject. Um, and uh, and I mean there are lots of examples of uh, youth group situations where this has been handled extraordinarily badly by people who are utterly unqualified to be able to explore these matters with uh, with young people who are actually wrestling with their own human version of the ponfar, which is not happening every seven years, but lasts you know a really long time right through adolescence. Yeah, I think that's probably true um, in terms of. Um adolescents acting out their hormones, I suppose this is a hormonal thing because they talk about brain scans and other things like that with um, looking at the PONFAR with um, Boric. But um, I don't know. It's I think it's more complex, maybe not with human creatures, but certainly in this case here because there's all sorts of things tied up with arranged marriages and mating and fighting to the death and bloodlust that we tend not to get with adolescents. Well, not often anyway. They might be thinking it. They don't usually act it out. So I think it's a little bit more complicated. Well, that's what I thought. And, and I mean, that, that, that sort of... Um covering things up and not dealing openly i think has so many repercussions and mm-hmm. uh, you know without commenting on 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 what what it is in vulcan society certainly in in human society i think it it serves us so badly um but but it's a difficult one because you also want to respect different cultural traditions and so you know when you have um uh, aboriginal um uh um, sort of uh, mores are around what's men's business and women's business that can't be discussed in, in a certain company, mixed company or whatever. Uh, the same thing happens in, in some uh, islander cultures. It, it becomes very difficult because on the one hand, you have this sense that actually it's really important to talk openly about these things and, and uh, particularly as Christians to be able to uh, talk carefully and thoughtfully about different ethical things that we're confronted with. And yet at the same time, you want to respect uh, traditions that do want to uh, keep certain things private or between uh, a particular gender or or whatever it might be. And and so there's there's that clash there of values, isn't there, uh, that that, uh, we, we find ourselves confronting. Yeah, I think that's right. And and when you think of the actual sex act, it's where you're most intimate and you're most vulnerable. And both of those things are not things that we normally like a whole lot of people poking their nose into. Nobody wants to be pulled apart when they're most vulnerable, even scientifically, really. And when you're at your most intimate, it's not something either that you may wish to share with the world. So I get that. But again, that's the difference, isn't it, between uh, an in, an individual's desire for and right for privacy and talking about something in general terms, uh, in terms of how it affects species. And uh, I mean, in terms of the individual right to privacy, I, I was a little amused by the fact that the uh, the doctor, you know, the scene after. Um, uh, Vorek has said, you know, I, d- I don't want to talk about this. Can you just release me to my um, uh, cabin and, and I'll uh, meditate? The, the doctor in the very next scene is talking to Tuvok about what's happening to Vorek and asking for, for tips and tricks. So I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know about the doctor's ethics there. I don't think the doctor would occur. It was unethical because he's really wants to pursue what's best for his patient and he's hoping the older experienced Tuvok might be able to tell him what could be done that would be helpful. Yeah, well, I mean, and and, um, and Tuvok, Tuvok, as we know, is uh, is over a hundred years old, which means that he's probably experienced uh, a, a dozen ponfars uh, at this point in time, um, and I think that's where some of the holes appear in um, in in some of this Vulcan mythos is that uh, um, I, I couldn't help but um, but uh, have a have a ponderous moment when I was watching the beginning of the recently released Strange New Worlds. 
um, where a, a young Spock is getting engaged to a to a Vulcan that he's been betrothed to. Um, clearly not in the throes of Ponfar, both of them extraordinarily rational, um, but actually um, engaging in an intimate uh, encounter with each other. I mean, stoically, yes, uh, in a very Vulcan-esque kind of way. And in fact, they have a a rather heated argument when he chooses to um, 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 uh, <laughs> prioritise work over 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 being um with his betrothed but um and i say heated in a very stoic vulcan kind of way but you know all of the 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 the, the interaction was unmissable um for those who are aware of vulcans um so it, it it's clear that vulcans are capable of um being intimate with each other and forming relationships with each other beyond the pond far um, but there is this, this I guess, um, historical, instinctual, primeval remnant that says that they actually must return to the homeworld and they must take a mate every seven years. It just seemed to me like coming into heat. That was the best mm. way I could describe it, like my cat or dog when it comes into heat. And mm. they, you know, they'll go berserk to get out and find someone or something to mate with. Um, it mm. reminded me a bit of that. So. I wondered whether or not it was just a seven-yearly event so all their children are seven years apart or whether there was some form of intimacy in between this Ponfar. And if there is, why do you need the Ponfar at all? So, yeah. Well, I think thankfully the Ponfars of Vulcans are not synced up. Otherwise, that would create absolute chaos every seven <laughs> years on the homeworld as every Randy's Vulcan comes back from wherever they were in space to actually engage in uh, and 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 in, in either mortal combat or uh, or sexual relations with people with other Vulcans. So, so I, I I get the impression that they're not kind of in sync. Otherwise, that would just I mean be untenable. Yeah, it would. I think the the other thing that uh, I found interesting in in reflecting upon this was um, uh, the the there, there seems in this episode to be and uh, in, in the way the the Vulcan Ponfar is thought about generally in Star Star Trek, um, uh, an assumption that that what is um, is good. Uh, you know, this this is a, a natural part of uh, the evolution of their species, and so it it must be not tampered with. And uh, you know, I, I I I wonder about that because I think there are there are aspects of uh, a human mating behaviour uh, that that have been developed by evolutionary means and have um, uh, an evolutionary advantage in the kind of setting in which uh, primitive humans evolved. Um, that that we now would not want uh, to be what uh, drives us, and and we choose to make moral decisions which may in fact go against uh, the way in which we've been shaped by evolution, and and uh, I, I just think that's an interesting uh, aspect that that seems to be totally uh, neglected, and I, I'm 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 sorry we didn't get more of a discussion of the doctors. Um, a solution, which um, you know, was an ingenious idea. Uh, hollow sex, you know, always good uh, for the. It rating didn't work though, and whatever. Well, exactly, and we never had that discussion afterwards to actually say it didn't work. I wonder why it didn't work. I wonder what we learned by that. It was just sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, brushed over, and and we we never hear any more about it, which is a shame because I think actually the. Uh, technological or biological um, ability to change the things that are created by evolution, um, you know, might be quite helpful in making moral choices and good choices. Uh, you know, certainly uh, if you think about uh, uh, human species, uh, the ability to use contraception is absolutely vital for the health of our planet and our species. Yeah, I wondered some of those questions myself because, I mean, Vorick seemed quite calmed down after the holodeck experience and then suddenly you find he's 
jammed all the communication channels and he's down, you know, breathing fire and brimstone at Tom. Um, and I found the whole thing a bit testosterone fueled, for want of a better <laughs> term. I don't know whether Vulcans have testosterone. But and it, very patriarchal, like when Torek, uh, Vorek fronts up to Balana in the first instance and makes this um, proposal. Let me take this opportunity to declare Kunant Solik my desire to become your mate. What? In human terms, I am proposing marriage. He just <laughs> assumes she's going to say yes. And, you know, it's, and it gets all dirty when she doesn't. And I thought it's a very masculine sort of, you know, flexing of the biceps kind of episode until, of course, you get Balana at the end who knocks him out when I thought, good for you. <laughs> So that's a bit concerning that we haven't evolved past, you know, me, He-Man, you, 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 uh, you, Jane, and I'm just going to drag you by the hair to the nearest cave. And and actually, just picking up on that, Elizabeth, I was interested uh, as I was writing my notes that this the very first scene is where they come across this planet and they scan to see are there signs of life and they can't find any. And, and Janeway then um, actually uses the terminology, well, let's stake a claim. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, <laughs> Plant and the I flag. Thought, I thought that was very, very interesting. Uh, I mean, yes, there's a big discussion there, but it was then very interesting to to move to this uh, scene of Vorik proposing to Balana. And, and as you say, you know, his sense that, um, why would he be denied? And it's almost like he's also staking a claim and, and very much that, you know, you're my property, you're my woman, you know, uh, and, and the anger that, that wells up well, when there's no. He's followed all the steps. They've, they've been on a date. He's bought her dinner. They've actually gone through all of the processes. I mean, I guess he's, he's in a position to be able to expect some reciprocation. Um, certainly, certainly she's led him on um, by accepting all of those things. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and look, I'm a bit tongue-in-cheek here by saying this, and I would suggest that, uh, you know, this is not the appropriate way to actually try and establish a relationship with someone. But um, but the reality is that I've met a lot of humans who actually operate this way and uh, and are, are quite upset and hurt when they are when they've gone through all of the the uh, the rituals and processes and have not been able to um to 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 um move to the next stage so to say. Well, I think males in particular need to learn that you can't just buy female participation in intimacy. It doesn't work mm. that way. You can't buy someone's emotions. And and often insisting on carrying out these so-called rituals like playing for dinner and things like that, it's awkward. You know, you've mm. got some bloke there insisting that they pay for something and you want to go halves with them or do something different and and then finding after they've insisted absolutely that's what they're going to do, that there's strings attached to it that you didn't know about and you couldn't have done anything about it anyway, it it just puts you in a no-win situation completely. What are you meant to do, you know? And, then- and yet um, both genders use words like, you know, have to invest in the relationship. We've got to, you know, like, and so there, there is this transactional language which is, is used um, to describe these kinds of interactions. Well, I think if I invest in a relationship, it's because I'm in one already and I'm investing mm. my energy and time and love and attention into somebody that I've come to some arrangement with that I want to be in that relationship with. Um, I'm mm. not investing in it from the get-go because I buy the prawn cocktail. You know, it's it, I don't, right. it doesn't work like that. But it is that tricky area, especially for human um, engagement. How do relationships start? Um, and, you know, you hear these stories of, you know, how we met and how I met your mother and all of those kind of things. And, and, um, and there does seem to be a significant amount of chance, you know, some enchanted evening, you will meet a stranger across a crowded room like it, like for some people for whom these relationships are, are, are not, not happening. And as people um, go for longer periods of times, perhaps seven years, the, the urge to try and actually 
um, manufacture something becomes more intense. Um, like it's uh, there isn't a process for beginning a relationship in human terms, is there? Not really. Um, there's certain cultural ones, um, certainly not in the Western culture. Um, in, we know that in other cultures like Islander culture and Asian culture um, and different ones around the world, there are different rituals. There are arranged marriages. There are things that are established that you might go through a process that's being described here, something like this Vulcan one um, that you would do. But certainly in our own culture, um, it's a bit more hit and miss about what's considered investment and what's considered an appropriate ritual to start it off. And as you say, Will, often it's just as my chance or accident as much as anything else. And I, I wonder too, um, you know, what what um, uh, the um, warping of this whole idea is that comes through the, the kind of way that we conceive of romantic love as something entirely distinct from uh, you know, sort of friendship and 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 that kind of affection and love. And uh, I mean, I know in my in my own case, uh, you know, my relationship with my wife started as a friendship, and then it gradually became a uh, a more um, uh, what's the word selective friendship, you know, um, and 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 so on. But but so often we see portrayed in media and elsewhere the idea that that it's something totally different. Uh, and you have to fall in love, and 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 so I, I wonder whether that, you know, for for people, um, if they're expecting something like that, then they don't necessarily invest, to use that terminology, the time in just developing friendships with uh, the the um, people that they're attracted to or, or whatever, you know. And so you don't, if you if you expect that. All I have to do is the right transaction, and then I get to a, a romantic and intimate relationship with someone. Uh, then you know I don't think you're setting yourself up for success, as opposed to I'm interested in people and I'm going to develop friendships and different kinds of relationships at a range of different levels with people, and and some of those might develop into something more. Mm. And isn't there a profound warning for the for the church or any community that wants to grow um, in this as well, in that so often what we try to do is get people to engage in the most intimate of our experiences, i.e. worship, um, as a first port of call. We, we actually are... Uh, we kind of pull people directly into the the strongest parts of relationship in a way that actually um, can be extremely awkward and difficult. Um, and and so there's this, um, um, I think, uh, a really um, important lesson to be learned. I mean, I, when I heard Vorik's words uh, to Balana at that uh, first instance, it did remind me very much of the words, you are honoured very much and favoured among women. Um, I have chosen you among all of the others. And, and suddenly I'm thinking, wow, wow, he's the angel Gabriel come to actually <laughs> proclaim the Lord's favor on Mary. Um, you know, he's, he's God's gift to Balana um, and, and lays it out very statistically to say, oh, look, there are X number of men. Um, many of them are going to be disappearing very shortly in terms of pairing up. And, uh, and, and, and I actually have the physiology that matches yours. Like, so he, he makes some very compelling points. I've come to greatly admire not only your impressive technical skills, but also your bravery and sense of moral duty. All excellent qualities in a prospective mate. But you're Vulcan. I am half Klingon. <laughs> I really can't imagine. Perhaps we are not an obvious match. However, our differences would complement each other. You've often expressed frustration with your Klingon temper. My mental discipline would help you control it. Furthermore, I Wait, feel that- Wait, please, please. Um... I see that you've given this a lot of um, logical thought, and uh, I really am very flattered. He's given it a lot of thought. I mean, and and I do I do think that Balana, I do think that Balana actually was quite quite sensitive in the way she initially responds to she him. Does, she does, yeah. You know, recognizes that he's put thought into this and that he's thought it through and whatever, and she she's flattered, but uh, you know wants to decline, and it's only when he actually physically attacks her that, that she then responds violently. I yep. think she needs to at that point because he's yeah. really stepped over a boundary there, you know. Yes, he has. And I agree, yes. Lindsay. I think she does, despite his He-Man sort of 
swashbuckling. She does respond to him far more kindly than he probably merits at that point in time. And I think his response is just totally unreasonable. Um, in terms of oh, what he's he gone does. off hook. Yeah, I, I don't think this is. I don't think he got up in the morning and said, "Okay, this is what's going to happen." And if this doesn't work, that's my plan B. I, I think he's completely lost the plot. Um, and uh, I mean, um, what was his plan? Were they going to do it right there on the on the desk at engineering? Like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, he he he's kind of he's he's kind of lost his his um, rational script because of the the ponfar that's raging in his blood. Well, I, that's like saying he really didn't mean to decapitate that person because he was drunk or he was on drugs. And, yep. you know, I'm not, I'm not buying these excuses anymore. I don't yep. care that you're depressed. I don't care if you're on drugs. I don't care if you're drunk because a lot of people have mental health disorders, are drunk or take drugs without killing or raping or abusing other people. Yep, and I think that's the difference between discovering a reason why something's occurred and and excusing the the, the behaviour. Like there, there, there are lots of times where people will go, "Oh, this happened because this," and that can be very true that the that the, the reason that's given is actually there, but but it doesn't excuse behaviour um, when it comes down to it in the end. That's right, especially so, uh, with I mean, Vulcan what... logic. Shame on him. <laughs> what what you're saying there will um, presupposes uh, a sense that we actually do have the power to choose differently, um, that we do have the power to override whatever the the causal, emotional, you know, whatever um, thing that happens, the instinct or whatever. And and I think that's again part of this interesting, uh, you know, sort of discussion around. Uh, whether instincts are, are natural or good or, or whether they are something that needs to be brought under moral control and and can be. And, I mean, it's interesting that we have, for example, in our court systems, if you think about um, people who kill others, we, we do have uh, a recognition of a gradation of a person's ability to choose. And, and if someone is um, mentally in capable of um, recognizing what they're doing then then they have the option of, of uh, you know not being found guilty now they might then be put into a mental institution to have those um, mental issues looked at but um, we, we do have that sense of, of recognizing that sometimes a person doesn't have rational control of their actions that's true, and I think there's with the case of real psychosis, um, that probably is not just an excuse; it is a reason. But so often these things are trotted out by people who are in courts for doing real damage to other human beings or to killing other human beings. You particularly see it around uh, violence of men against women, I think. You particularly see it in violence around drunken violence with men against men. I didn't mean to punch him. He just stepped where my fist through. Um, you know, this sort of stuff. Um, he was asking for it. That's it. That's it, but that sort of things. And I routinely hear these excuses trotted out in courts about um, I didn't want to turn my back on him is the latest one. Um, you know, I was drunk. I was suffering from a mental illness. Well, as I said, people get drunk and suffer from a mental illness without killing people or hitting them or abusing them far more. So there's something else going on unless you are in a real full-blown psychosis, which I think is a different thing. Which also requires a structure and a and a way of actually handling and managing. So, yes, that's so right. there's a sense in which intervention is required in in that situation in order to protect the self and uh, and others. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about Vulcan sexuality today, which um, is not something I ever thought I would say on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but but now I'm going to say something I did also didn't think I'd ever say on a podcast. It's time for us to actually move uh, our focus to talk a little bit about Klingon sexuality. Um, and and <laughs> cultural appropriateness. I mean, um, uh, from what we've heard throughout Star Trek uh, lore and, and history, um, it's uh, considered to be good luck if a clavicle is broken on the wedding night in a Klingon relationship. Um, that uh, that that Klingon mating rituals, according to Worf, consist of uh, reciting poetry and ducking a lot. Um, <laughs> that that there is significant violence. Um, 
um, in um, in Klingon relationships, and we even see that today. That that uh, you know, um, Balana's um, um, response after being affected by the Ponfar is to become um, very upbeat, um, extraordinarily forthright, um, um, and um, and quite. Uh, ready to fight anyone who comes by and she in fact actually initiates a mating ritual with Tom Paris by by uh, well in the standard way by uh, by biting him on the face um so so there there are many times I'm listening to this stuff and I think to myself geez I'm glad I'm not a klingon um because um there's a lot going on there for the klingons that we would find really difficult to actually come to terms with as human beings well, yes, and we're not built like Klingons and we don't have the same sort of pleasure in the, oh, well, some, most of us don't, some of us probably do, and, and mm. you know, that kind of grappling physically like a Greek Olympics with another fine specimen, you know, um, to see who, not so much who is the superior, but who's maybe honed their muscles the best and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's a little bit different. It is being on heat, but... While it's violent, it seems to be slightly more nuanced than this is the way I see it, so you will capitulate. I mean, Balana seems to have some reasoning faculty still left to her, which um, poor old Boric appears not to at different points. And, and I mean, I think the other interesting difference is that uh, with the uh, Vulcans, there's this sense of, as you say, it's like being on heat where... Uh, a particular time comes and and they are overtaken by these instinctual and presumably um, neurochemical uh, things happening. Um, but in the case of the uh, Klingon, uh, they they seem able to control when they wish to uh, enter into a, a mating situation. And, uh, but then part of the process it seems to me, is is that release of control. And I, I'm just going to do all the things that maybe I, I don't do normally, you know, because, you know, I don't normally bite people on the face, but, uh, you know, I'm going to let myself go. And and so it, the the violence is, is there, but it sort of comes in a different way from from a, a releasing of control that, that is under the person's uh, initiative. And it's mutual, one would assume, between um, um, Klingons that they agree that broken cavicles are good luck or biting on the face is a, a, a sign that you are interested in someone, that there's this mutual consent there, which with um, Boric is totally lacking with Balana. He just assumes and his logic says she should reciprocate. From a Klingon perspective then, um consensual mutual violence in intimate relationships uh appropriate um uh, you know that's that's okay like uh you know um i mean certainly this is as much a human question as it is a klingon question we we we've we, we're aware that there are people who have kinks that actually make it uh make it um uh, the the excitement of their intimate encounters is is about being able to inflict violence and pain on each other or to receive violence and pain from another person um how much of this is cultural consensual how can we be sure if um if both people are into it and and what are the consequences for a society that um that in, that, that that has these kinds of engagements inside them well, I think that the fact that there's a whole SMM, S&M business running in our Western society suggests that there are consensual agreements about inflicting pain and how it's inflicted within an intimate and a sexual relationship. And some of those are within where the partners love and trust each other and some of those people go and pay for it. And some of those you go in like a swingers kind of thing where everyone likes that sort of thing and they work it out how they're going to do that. Um, I think... Um, it's when someone forces that on you and there's no consent involved that it becomes an issue. I mean, I, I think this is really quite quite interesting in the light of uh, another um, conversation that's happening in New South Wales at the moment uh, around uh, voluntary assisted dying because it's the same sort of questions of um, is there some reason why society would clamp down on people doing something consensually. And in the case of 
you know, a voluntary assisted dying, where we're saying, although the person consents to have their life ended by some procedure or is even happy to do that themselves, we as a society, um, you know, may have a stake in, in controlling or regulating or stopping that. And in the same way, you know, we, we ask the question, well, is there a reason why society would want to say, even though the two of you like inflicting pain on one another, we think that that needs to be regulated or controlled or stopped? Uh, so quite similar sort of um, uh, situations in a way where where we, we have this idea of consent and yet sometimes we think, well, is consent enough? Is, is it okay uh, for someone consent to, you know, being eaten by someone who has a cannibalistic, uh, you know, sort of uh, bent. Um, is, is it okay if the person said yes? And I think as a society we say, no, that's not okay. We don't care if the person said yes. We're still going to lock you up. Well, this episode got dark very quick, didn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is that sense in which, you know, like, uh, I mean, I, I, I personally, I think that that the area of regulation does need to be there at least to some extent because um, it could be possible to be gaslit or convinced or or manipulated into 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 behaving in that way. And um, and when we're talking about high emotional states like um, relationships, like sex, like all kinds of things. Um, it, it can become very, um, very hard to work out what's what's fair and what's real. What 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 exchange is actually appropriate? I, I did some research around seven and the Bible for us um, because I thought that was actually interesting. And you know, I came to that story where um, there was um, that um, uh, situation where. Um, we have uh, Jacob um, pursuing Rachel, uh, and he actually has to work for seven years. Um, unfortunately, he gave an incorrect or incomplete description of which daughter he wanted to marry. So at the end of the seven years, he ended up marrying Leah, uh, and then uh, then he had to because she had weak eyes or something, different and then he had to marry. Eyes. <laughs> Two then he had to marry eyes. marry marry her, and then he had to work for another seven years. And and so there's this sense in which uh, you know there's there, there are. There, there are opportunities for the misuse of power um, in relation to these things, even if people consent to, to contractual or mutually uh, accepted relationships. That, um, that when there are high emotional states, people are in danger of making decisions not based on the, the, their best welfare, but on on the way they feel uh, about a situation. Well, I think that's part of the human condition. And in that story you're relating, Laban diddled Jacob. Jacob. He sure did. Jacob was quite clear about which daughter he wanted to marry, but Leah with her two different coloured eyes, I think she had like a hazel one and a brown one, um, couldn't be married off. And so Jacob knew, uh, Laban knew that was an issue, so he... He disguised her basically and palmed her off as Rachel. And so that's how Jacob was deceived. So it wasn't so much Jacob's own passions, which probably weren't helpful, that deceived him, but more Laban's manipulation and Leah's complicity with the situation. And you're talking about a very patriarchal culture there where these women are being bargained and traded off by their father to the would-be bridegroom. Um and I think there's something of this patriarchal culture being reflected in this episode. I mean, it's kind of uh, balanced, if you like, by Balana the Amazon at the end <laughs> who knocks um, what's-his-face out when he gets um, uh, Boric out when he really had demanding to kill Tom. So, uh, I mean, just uh, as an aside, and I know we're moving back off Klingon to Vulcan uh, physiology, but I, I was interested that... Um, uh, in the original series episode, uh, where the, um, the the option of the, of the battle uh, is taken, it's actually a battle to the death. To the um, death, that's and, right. And, and 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 they end up having to do a trick where uh, Doctor McCoy, you know, gives uh, gives Kirk a thing that that uh, will knock him out and make him look dead, but he can then be revived. Um, but there's no mention of this in this situation, and uh, it, it comes across much more as, you know, like uh, Tuvok, uh, you know, being like one of these um, uh, kind of 
tough, tough uh, adult mentors who says, oh, let, let, the, let the two boys duke it out. You know, they'll feel better after they, you know, bash each other a little bit and, and then they can be friends sort of thing, you know. And, and so I was interested in that, that clearly this is not a battle to the death uh, and uh, uh, Vorik is, is knocked, knocked to the ground, but he's not even unconscious, uh, let alone near death. So I wondered about that. I uh, I did look up some information according to the Vulcan regulation 7.6.2 um that if the um uh, uh, pers- pr- prospective mates of either gender are not interested in actually conducting the ponfire with the other then they can fight each other and then that should not be to the death um so so uh, so there's a nice little bit of headcanon there and I I did read that elsewhere now that's that's not um not, not, uh, you know, um, that that's 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 the gymnastic way that um, Star Trek tries to get around these things. So in this case, where Balana is the mate that doesn't want to actually um, uh, complete um, the the intimate um, encounter with with Vorik, she's entitled to choose her own champion, as as Tuvok says. But I have to say, I loved watching Chakotay's face as he's actually going, "What we're doing this? This is what we? This is how we're? What? What? what how? Excuse me." Um, especially after he decked that guy for actually speaking out of turn in the uh, in the in the um, commissary earlier on. You yeah. know, like what's yeah. the marquee way of dealing with this? Maybe they should have actually handed them phases and turned it at, at uh, ten paces. Oh, that would have taken away all the fun and excitement of Balana the Amazon knocking um, what's in his name out, Boric out on the ground and uh, teaching him a salient lesson about consent. Um, now, now speaking of, of consent, uh, we've, we've talked about uh, Vulcan sexuality and uh, a little bit about Klingon sexuality. What we haven't talked about yet uh, is human sexuality and Tom Paris. Uh, because, uh, you know, Tom uh, goes through quite a, a journey in this uh, uh, particular episode as well, uh, you know, given that we know that he's he's uh, keen on Balana uh, and, and that's actually brought to the fore in this episode. Uh, and so he finds himself, you know, trapped in a, in a cabin with Balana who, who seems to be very keen on, you know, um, uh, doing something intimate and, and he has to turn her down and and uh, then at one stage they they kiss, and then he again turns her down, and 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 then when um, uh, Tuvok insists that the only way to save her life is actually to to uh, consummate the pond fire, he he. Uh, okay, if it's an order, I'll do it then. Fair <laughs> enough. Let's go. <laughs> like, <laughs> Can't we beam up to the ship first? Could we find a bed? Can we do it somewhere that's actually not on the ground behind a tree? Like, you know, like I, I were lots of questions for me in that. It was kind of like, uh, um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But, but yes, uh, look, I thought Tom Paris was very noble, very noble in all of this. It's, it's actually, uh, a fairly standard nerd sci-fi trope that you know that you get everything you want in the relationship that your incel self has ever wanted, and suddenly you're then in a position where you have to say, "I oh, if I take it now, then it won't be real, and it won't be, it won't mean anything, and and maybe we'll regret it in the morning," kind of thing. So, so yeah, there is that kind of really interesting, very human um, equation that's played out regularly inside the the nerdy uh, the fandom of Star Trek. Well, I thought he was noble. I think he was in that sense that he kept resisting. But but I, I actually want to pick up on that because I noticed your comment in, in our chat beforehand, uh, Elizabeth, where you used that word noble and then uh, uh, Will, you just used it. And and when I was writing notes watching the episode, I, I actually began typing something about Tom as being very noble there and then I stopped myself. And I asked myself the question, why is it noble for someone to do what is uh, uh, simply morally correct? Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it wasn't some huge sacrifice that he was giving up, you know, some, some you know, huge wealth or, 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 or something like that. He, he was just not taking advantage of someone. And, and, and I think that I... I I think we regularly would look at an episode like that and say he's being noble, and I think that actually shows some of the the patriarchy and that sense of entitlement, which is still there in our culture. Mm. Um, yep. That that we you know praise Tom for doing 
just what is normally morally correct. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Lindsay. And that was Will that called him noble, not me. Um, oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Blame me. Fair enough. Well, in the conversation beforehand, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I got I got in enough trouble after last week's conversations about sexuality at Thursday night board games last night. So, <laughs> hi to all those there who actually uh, took a very different stance to where I what we were talking about last week. But uh, look, I, I um I. I, I think though there's a very real phenomenon here that that we we find it hard to address in that that, that there are uh, and bear with me I'm not excusing behaviour but there are a lot of men who feel that um, that in relationships that they they have um, they they might do anything for somebody that they feel that they're in in love with or have feelings for, and that either through being oblivious to those feelings or sometimes I think knowing that they can actually ask this person to do things for them and that they will do it, they use that um, in order to 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 gain things that they wouldn't normally gain. Like and so so this whole whole idea of taking advantage um, for Tom. By actually choosing not to be in the moment and allow the moment to to happen and unfold, which he had full consent of at the time, was only his his um his sense of saying, "Well, I have to interpret this situation and wonder whether or not it's actually going to to be something that will be consistent tomorrow as it is today." That that he he actually loses the moment, um, and that that final scene. In the elevator is quite devastating and 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 quite painful for Tom as he realizes, ah, if I had have done things differently, maybe I'd be in a different relationship with this person that I'm attracted to. Um, I didn't see that. That was quite that. I think in the lift he's saying to her, "We've seen something now of each other that can't be unseen and unfelt, mm. and it's going to have some sort of trajectory somewhere." Mm. And that's just the way it is. And you can pretend all you like, Balana, that, you know, it was just the heat of the moment, but I know better. And I mm. thought that was a fair enough comment given what and, had transpired. And, and I mean, I, I agree. And I, I didn't see it as devastating at all, and particularly because of her final comment. Is the, the final, yes. The, yes, that's the, right. The lift and, and says, be, be careful what you wish for. You know, I mean, that that is absolutely yep. foreshadowing. So Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is 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 that that it's it's that moment is very emotionally charged I think for for Tom as he's actually trying to make sense of. Um and it's extraordinarily here we go. I'm going to use the word brave now for him to actually to to risk bearing that to her um in that space. Um you know, it might have been just as easy for him to go, "Oh, I can't." I can't talk about that. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think it was brave of him to do that. I don't think men are always good at talking about their emotions and all kudos to Tom for actually naming the elephant in the room, if you like, and saying, you know this happened, I know this happened, and it just won't be explained away quite as easily as you think it or you're trying to do. One of the things that that I found interesting watching this now and um, in my mind, uh, the same sort of things were coming, going around as we're talking about issues of consent and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I was remembering back, uh, you mentioned, Will, early in, in the podcast about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the way in which uh, some Christian cultures have, have talked about sexuality or not talked about sexuality. And I think, um, you know, that, that there's been prevalent very much a sort of a, a purity culture uh, that, that was uh, certainly part of my upbringing, uh, perhaps not quite as strongly as in some uh, parts of the Christian tradition, but it, it was certainly there. And I remember the first time watching this, um, the, the moral dilemma was quite a different one. And it was actually like when Tuvok says to, to Tom, uh, you know, uh, the only way to, to save her life is to, is to take this to culmination. It was like, oh, my goodness, is he going to sacrifice his purity? Is he, 
he's, you know, what would I do if I was in such a terrible uh, situation? I think he sacrificed that purity quite some time <laughs> I ago. I think so as well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, no, I know, but you know, you know what I mean. That it's that 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 the moral ethical dilemma as posed by that kind of purity purity culture is is not about consent and and being careful about not. Uh, doing something which I don't have consent for. It's actually all about, you know, keeping myself a pure little lily and, uh, you know, uh, to be asked to actually do this thing, uh, you know, a- against um, my uh, ethical uh, mores, you know, it becomes quite a, an interesting sort of thing to reflect on the different way that that struck me back then. Mm. Yeah, look, yeah, yeah, go on. I was just going to say that never even occurred to me, Lindsay. So that's a different (laughs) viewpoint. Sorry. I mean, we are we are deep in the the curve of the redemption arc of Tom Paris here. I mean, you know, there was a time where Elizabeth was quite happy to delete Tom Paris. Yes, I was. (laughs) um, But we're now actually in this place where we're starting to see him become the the good guy and the the nice guy and and uh, the guy who actually makes uh, good decisions. Long gone is the Tom Paris who sleeps with the scientist's wife and ends up being charged for the murder of the scientist who we saw, I think, way back in season one. Yes. Um, and for me, I mean, it often happens in these Star Trek narratives, the, the arc is turning, it's more of a redemption angle than a redemption arc. Um, it's happened very quickly. Um, and so we're talking about his having to compromise his moral ethical framework, which less than a year ago didn't exist. So he's, he's gained this framework very quickly from what I can see. Yeah. Maybe being cooped up with nobody else but your crew and having to sort of sit with yourself a lot more than he would normally do with the distractions of a space station or the planet Earth has been very good for Tom. And and I think I, the comment I'd make is that I don't think he necessarily gained a moral framework quickly. I think, I, I mean, we often talk about people acting out, and 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 I think I think that that was true of Tom. And what it implies is that you actually do have that moral framework, but for whatever reason, you are deliberately acting against it um, uh, because of what's going on for you psychologically. Or, or whatever, and and so I think that that was the Tom that we saw early on. It wasn't that he had no moral framework and and no sense of right and wrong and wanting to do the right thing. It was that because of whatever psychological torture was going on for him, um, he he felt the need to actually act against uh, you know what might have been his, his more normal inclination. So I think what we see is in a stable and supportive environment and, and with friendships and, and that support mechanism of Starfleet, uh, he, he's actually able to live into what was already there. I think that's true and I think in some ways it's easier for him. You can't go around acting like a tomcat and getting drunk and playing pool and, and sleeping with every woman on board a, sta- a, a starship. You just can't do it. So you either are going to go nuts or you're going to have to analyse who you really are and come to terms with that and act in appropriate ways because this is where the um, survival of the tribe depends on everybody following certain ways and acting in certain ways. I mean, if everyone went around having pond fars, for instance, it would be just untenable. I think also that there is something else with Tom in that he, for the first time in his life, he's got people who believe in him um, and that that belief can be extraordinarily transformative, that um, that that the captain, that Chakotay, um, that Neelix and Tuvok are, are all actually giving him an immense amount of freedom and moratorium to actually exercise his gifts and skills. And so he's... He's actually learning his self-worth and in the process seeing the worth of those around him. And I, I think the dynamic that, that this also highlights, though, is um, the need for that supportive environment and the people who, who trust him and whatever uh, to transform him so that it actually becomes somewhat something that he takes into himself. And, and I think um, we, we see that uh, sometimes in real life where... Um, people who have uh, emotional or uh, 
uh, mental difficulties or have, have not uh, really uh, taken on board a, a good moral framework will be able to cope well in a, a really structured environment like the army or something like that. Uh, and, and they're able to actually perform well and, and to meet um, norms and so forth, but they haven't internalised it. So when they then uh, leave the army, um, everything goes to pot because they don't have uh, the 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 self-discipline uh, to make good choices. That They had to have that discipline applied from without. Yeah, and I think that's... That's true, which is what I guess part of my point is about um, if you're on a starship and you're all going to be trapped together for 70 years, you don't have a lot of choice. And like when the psychopath dude we saw earlier on actually kills someone, now he couldn't have been doing that every episode. The environment impinged it on how he saw things and how he decided he wanted to be and what he was going to do. Um and that's really important, I think, to acknowledge that. Well, well, I guess realistically you can only do that 142 times before he's actually killed everybody on Voyager. Exactly, um, and he's on his own. And I think they would have found him out and got him by then. <clears throat> One would hope so anyway. While we're winding up, a couple of uh, little things that, that um, I, I thought was interesting uh, the uniforms that they wear as the away team, I don't think I've seen that particular style of uniform before. Uh, that, that was quite interesting with the very raised uh, colour band for, you know, red or, or uh, yellow or whatever. Had you seen that uniform previously in Voyager, Will? I think uh, the, I've not seen it in Voyager, but there was a similar kind of exercise in Next Generation for a uniform for exercise. So when you oh, okay. see... Um, them on the on the on the exercise deck working out that they're in that kind of one. So I think, uh, and yes, actually we have seen that one before because when um, we had that episode where they were trying out the trying to train these um, unruly um, um, marquee people, they were all in that kind of uniform at that point in time as well. So I think it must be the uh, the one you can sweat in. Yeah, I thought it was something like they were going to do a lot of rock climbing, so mm. I figured it was something to do with that. It was a physical kind of thing depending on what they thought they were doing rather than we're just going doing a, a recce of the surface kind of stuff. It's the uh, Starfleet issue tracksuit. <laughs> and the other little um, tidbit, uh, you asked the question earlier, uh, Elizabeth, about um, you know whether whether Vulcans uh, um, actually have you know um, uh, testosterone, uh, and I don't know the answer to that, but it's interesting that the doctor confirms that they do have serotonin because he he talks to uh, Vorik about his serotonin levels uh, coming back down to, to normal, and uh, so I thought that was fascinating that uh, two totally different species from different planets would use the same neurotransmitter. I don't see why not, because if you're humanoid, then you've got to have some similarities, I would think, biologically. Well, that's what I assume anyway, that it, every time there's a new species, it can't be totally different. Like cats and dogs aren't related species, but they do have things in common, like a nervous system and teeth and, you know, a well, blood that, flow. True, but they also have an evolutionary heritage in common. They actually have evolved from uh, common ancestors on the same and, planet. And how do you know that aliens and us haven't evolved from some common ancestor somewhere? I was... I was going to say the, the the episode where they actually travel across the galaxy to discover that they're all related to a common ancestor in Next Generation suggests that uh, all life actually came from one point. Um, so um, so so uh, yeah, I guess that 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 could be put there. Um, just wanted to also pick up that this was epi this episode was directed by Andrew Robinson, play who plays Garrick on Deep Space Nine. Um, so that's uh, it's a good one, uh, good to know. And uh, the very shortly in Deep Space, Deep Faith Nine, we'll be doing uh, that wonderful episode, Our Man Bashir. Um, so um, it's a big one for Andrew Robinson and uh, Alexander Siddig. So that uh, that'll be good. Um, also, uh, this episode does not contain any Harry Kim. No, it doesn't. Yep, he's not so, anywhere to be seen. 
I think he was taking advantage of uh, Tom's away mission to catch up with both of the Delaney sisters at the same time. <laughs> and, of course, we can't finish without uh, mentioning, you know, the, the, the big reveal at the end which yes. uh, Elizabeth commented on, the fact that uh, uh, the Borg are uh, the... Um, the enemy which attacked uh, whatever these uh, race was called. Um, and, of course, that foreshadowing for Borg coming into uh, Voyager in a big way uh, uh, next week a little bit, but uh, even more so as we get down the track. Yep. Yeah, you did very well, Lindsay, to get through 59 minutes without actually um, um, <laughs> getting to the Borg. So I do love a good Borg. That's right. Well, we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about the Borg into the future. Um, this has been a fabulous episode to talk um, uh, in, a, in a galactic uh, xenobiological way about um, the, uh, a number of different species and their mating rituals. The Doctor would be very pleased, I think, by the database we've actually um, put together today. Um, and Till next week, um, uh, this has been um, Voyjourn, um, our theological journey through the Delta Quadrant, and I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain.